right, good morning again. Uh, If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to Matthew chapter number 16. The Gospel of Matthew chapter number 16. I was uh, preparing for what we would do in our final Sunday of the year together, and I couldn't get my mind off of the ending of our Bible reading plan for this year. Uh, In case you don't know, we read through the New Testament together for those of you who uh, wanted to read through Scripture as a church. And so this final month of the year, we've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew. And so we have finished that up. As a matter of fact, today would be the final day. So if you're somewhere way back earlier, you've got one day to finish all of that. So if you've yet to start, I believe in you. I think you can read the New Testament today uh, before the New Year celebration. So anyway, uh, just kidding about that, by the way. Uh, We do have a new Bible reading plan for next year. It's out. There are several copies at the Next Steps area. There are several copies all throughout the lobby. So we would invite you certainly to grab one of those on your way out this morning. Uh, One of our goals every year is to read through Scripture together as a church. This year we went through the New Testament. So logically, uh, this upcoming year, we're going to go through the Old Testament together. So that Bible reading plan is out there. Grab one of those. Make use of it. We would love for you to to journey with us through Scripture together as a church. However, we have finished uh, the, the end of the Gospel of Matthew over these last few weeks, and for me, there was a particular moment with Jesus and those early disciples that I personally, I could not stop thinking about. It's found in Matthew chapter 16. Now, mostly what this passage made me think about is what I like to call turning point moments in life. Have you heard of these before? Moments in your life where maybe you were headed one direction, but something happened and it changed the direction that your life was going. I've had plenty of these in my own life. I can think back to the moment when my parents got divorced. That was definitely a moment in my life, a turning point kind of thing that changed the direction that my life was headed. I think about the first time that I attended a church in Laurel, Mississippi by the name of Salem Heights Baptist Church. After attending that church, it was a few months later when I gave my life to Jesus and certainly attending there changed the direction of my life. I think about the moment my mom got remarried and we moved to Ohio. That changed the direction of my life. I think back to the moment that I accepted a job offer at a small church called Tucker's Crossing Baptist Church. I cannot even begin to explain to you how much that decision has changed the direction of my life. Now, I bet you have some moments like this in your own life. I would dare say that each of us could talk about turning point moments in our life. A lot of times when we think about these, we think about famous people. You may have heard some of these interesting stories like Oprah Winfrey, right? Maybe you heard about her, how she was fired as a news anchor and it led her to becoming one of the most famous talk show hosts of all times. Or maybe you've heard of a guy by the name of Steve Jobs who was removed from his own company, which led to him founding Apple, which most of us probably have some device of that kind. Or Walt Disney, you probably know he was fired from a newspaper because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. And now we probably know of most of his products by the name of Disney. Or maybe you think about someone like Michael Jordan, who was famously cut from his high school basketball team and, of course, became, for many of you, the greatest basketball player of all times. But listen, beyond famous people, each of us, just ordinary folks, can think about turning point 
moments. Now for you, this could be some life change in your family, such as a divorce or death or moving somewhere. It could be as simple as getting your driver's license or your very first job, or maybe that first date or getting married or some major breakup in your past or graduating from college or starting your career or retiring, right? It could be any number of big decisions that has changed the direction of your life. Our turning point moments may be different, but we all have them. We all have things that have happened to us that changed the course of our lives. And if we really think about those turning point moments, I bet we could all agree that the direction of our lives was determined by decisions that we made. I'll give you a few examples for me just to follow up on some of my turning point moments. When my parents got divorced, I chose to live with my mom instead of my dad. That put me on a very different direction for my life. When I attended Salem Heights Baptist Church, I chose to talk to somebody about Jesus when I was invited to do so, forever changed my life. When I was at Tucker's Crossing, I chose to ask a girl by the name of Kayla Smith on a date, forever changed my life. The decisions that we make determine the direction of our lives. And maybe you're thinking this morning, Danny, why does this make you think about Matthew chapter 16? Well, that answer is simple because no decision is more important or more of a turning point moment than the one that Jesus presents to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. And as I was thinking through what Jesus discusses with his disciples, I thought there may be no better time for each of us to examine this moment than right now. Why? Because we look forward to a new year filled with new decisions that will determine the directions of our lives and possibly the lives of others. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look at Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. We're gonna read this together. Matthew 16, we're gonna start in verse 13. Here's what Matthew records. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, their response to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They had an answer for what people claim about Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, here it is, flipping point, but who do you say that I am? Now think about that for a moment. He asked them what the rest of the world says. That's one thing. Then he makes it very, very personal to all those who are following after him. Forget what anybody else says. What do you say about me? And Simon Peter, right, seems to always be Peter. He replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God's the one who revealed it to you, Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. 
Father, we pray right now in these next few moments that we would hear from you. We would listen to your word. We would obey its truth and we would live our lives for you. Jesus, right now, this time is yours. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Man, this is an intense moment in the lives of those early disciples. Can you imagine if Jesus was standing here today and he asked each of us this question, who do you say that I am? What an intense moment this would become. In fact, all people must make a decision about Jesus. Can I just let you in on that? Everybody at some point in time will make a decision about Jesus. This is why he presents the question to his disciples. Look back at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and I want to pause for a moment because this is a significant moment in the gospel. Where they are really does matter, not just in location, but also in the time and place that this is spoken within the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus and his disciples are far from their usual location of ministry. They're far from Galilee. They're far from Israel. They're far from Judea. Judea and Jerusalem. They're far from the temple, the synagogue. They're far from the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're far from that life of ministry. In fact, we find Jesus and his disciples in a mostly Gentile land. What's even more fascinating is that Jesus and his disciples were around this area for nearly a week. And it was during this time that Jesus spoke plainly to the disciples about the cross and about the church. Now, the reason why this setting is important is because many people believe that this is a major turning point moment in the gospel. Like many of our turning point moments, this is an occasion when the direction of the disciples' lives are about to change. And not just the disciples, but the entire church. The direction of Jesus' ministry is about to take real form. Listen to what one commentary writer wrote. He put it like this, in this distant and obscure spot on the boundary line between Jewish and Gentile territory, the Lord in thought and intent, in spirit and in direct prophecy, turned his back on a Jewish kingdom and embraced a mostly Gentile church. Now, why would that be significant for us in this room this morning? Hello, we are the mostly Gentile church. What an exciting time for his followers then and still for his followers now to think that it was here that Jesus truly began to reveal his plan and his purpose for the church. Now, why would this be significant on New Year's Eve? Because friends, that plan that he reveals here is still the plan that he wants to use us to accomplish every day as we seek after Jesus. And so there they are in the district of Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Now this phrase that Jesus uses, son of man, is a very interesting way that Jesus speaks about himself. He could just say, who do people say that I am? Or who do people say that Jesus, the son of Joseph is? He could have represented himself in any number of ways, but instead he uses the phrase son of man of 
man. In fact, Jesus uses this phrase often to speak about himself. Now, you may not know what this phrase means or why Jesus uses this title for himself, but there are a couple of things that I would point out at this time for you to better understand this title that Jesus gives himself. There are really two significant reasons why the phrase son of man is so important. One of them is because it's a fulfillment of the prophecy from Daniel chapter 7. You say, Danny, what is it? Well, here are the words that Daniel writes in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to this. He wrote, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, listen to it, a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the fulfillment of a very well-known prophecy that all those listening over and over as he called himself the son of man would know he's talking about himself as the coming messiah but there's also something else that's interesting about this phrase for jesus to refer to himself as the son of man was for him to make a claim that he was both a hundred percent god and at the same time a hundred percent man. You say, Danny, what do you mean? He was fully God and he was fully man. Why would this be so significant? Well, he was the son of God and a divine part of the Godhead, yet he was also fully man in all that it means to be a man. It was only through Jesus being both God and man that he could be the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. He had to live among us as one of us so that through his perfect life, he could be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. You see, no one else could do what Jesus could do. He was a fulfillment of the prophecy from Daniel 7. He was a 100% God and a 100% man. He lived a perfect life as the coming true Messiah so that he could die as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jewish people awaiting the Messiah would know that Daniel referred to the one with all authority as the son of man. Jesus would continually call himself this, use this title so that he could continue to proclaim to the world who he is. He was saying that he was fully man, but he was also the exalted one because of his role in redemption. And so Jesus here in the midst of a Gentile land in a turning point moment in the gospels as he's about to give a picture of what is to come through the power of the church. He says, who do people say that the son of man is? Look at verse 14, because the disciples have an answer for him. Well, Jesus, if you're talking about everybody else, here's a few of the things that we've heard. Some say you are John the Baptist. Now, we might think, man, Jesus was more than John the Baptist, and of course he was, but John the Baptist was highly thought of on several terms. This would not have been insulting for Jesus to have been thought this way. He loved John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, Herod thought that John the Baptist was supernatural, that he had some kind of godlike 
power. He thought that Jesus could do his miracles and signs because he was John the Baptist come back from the dead. You see, Herod killed John the Baptist, and now he had began this conversation among the people that because he had killed a man who shouldn't have been killed, he must have come back from the dead with supernatural power, and he's going to pay me back for what I've done. In fact, Jesus thought very highly of John the Baptist. If you'll remember, he said, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So the disciples say, hey, Jesus, we've heard some people say you are John the Baptist. We've also heard some people say that you are Elijah. Once again, someone highly thought of for several reasons. You see, Jesus could do incredible things. So could Elijah. Matter of fact, let me give you a few of them. He predicted a three-year drought. He multiplied a widow's pantry supply during the drought that they were in. He raised a widow's son back to life. He called down fire at Mount Carmel that consumed the prophets of Baal. He unleashed a rainstorm to end the drought. He predicted the demise of King Ahab. He called down fire on another king on those first set of troops. He called down another fire on the second set of troops, just in case you thought the first one wasn't real. He split the Jordan River. John the Baptist, by the way, was considered the second Elijah, and Jesus thought of John the Baptist pretty highly. He thought this same way about Elijah. He was thought of this way because the Jews believed that Elijah would come back from the dead to prepare the hearts of their people for the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, in modern Jewish Passover celebrations, an empty chair is reserved at the table for Elijah in the hope that he would one day come to announce the Messiah's arrival. So Elijah's kind of a big deal, along with John the Baptist. And so his disciples say, hey, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. They bring up another guy who was highly thought of. They say, hey, you know what, Jesus? Some people think you're Jeremiah. You're that old prophet. Matter of fact, many scholars think of Jeremiah as the closest prophet to the ministry of Jesus. They had a lot of similarities in their ministry. Both were hated by their own people. Both were despised by the religious uh, nonsense of their day. Both were tired of the lip service from their so-called brothers. Also, there's a legend from other extra biblical texts that Jeremiah had hidden the tabernacle and the ark and the altar of incense. He hid all of it in a cave. The legend stated that Jeremiah would come back from the dead and reveal this location so that Israel could regain its glory. Also, it stated that Jeremiah would assist the great Jewish hero by the name of Jewish Maccabeus in overthrowing the Greeks. They would take over the Romans and begin, they would launch a new empire where Jesus and his people, the Jews, would reign over everyone. So some people thought, hey, Jesus, some people are saying you're Jeremiah. Then they said, you know what? They think you're some kind of prophet. May not be John the Baptist, may not be Elijah, may not be Jeremiah, but you are definitely a prophet. Why? Because the prophets were amazing people who were given special abilities by God to reveal his truth to God's chosen ones. They thought Jesus was given special gifts in order to draw the people back to God. He certainly had special gifts. He certainly had a special message. That's why he could speak the way that he did. However, here's what we know. Jesus was much more than a simple prophet. He did do 
amazing things that made people know that he was more than any ordinary man. In fact, if you just looked at the Gospel of Matthew before this moment, you would discover all sorts of things. You would discover he was born of a virgin. You would discover his escape from the hands of Herod. You would discover that God himself descended on him during his baptism and spoke audibly, this is my beloved son and I am fully pleased with him. You would discover him healing sickness and disease and demons. Matter of fact, he taught so powerfully that here's what the people said about Jesus. It said the the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. He healed a man with leprosy. He healed a Roman soldier's servant. He healed Peter's mother-in-law and many other sick and demon-possessed people. He calmed a storm that made his disciples say, who is this man? Even the winds and waves obey him. He healed two more demon-possessed men. He healed a paralyzed man. He healed the daughter of a synagogue leader. He healed a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years simply by touching the end of his robe. He healed two blind men. He healed a mute man so that a, a, a demon left him and he could begin to talk again. He gave his disciples the ability to heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. He healed a man with a withered hand. He healed many sick casted out a demon that caused a man to be blind and mute. He fed thousands of people with only five loaves and two fish. Hey, by the way, listen, listen, listen. He walked on water. He healed sick people simply by allowing them to touch the end of his robe. He cast out a demon from a Gentile woman's daughter. He healed lame, blind, crippled, mute, many other physical difficulties. He fed thousands again, by the way, with only seven loaves and a few fish. Obviously, up until this point in Matthew chapter 16, people knew that Jesus was different from other people. There was no one else quite like him. However, listen, comparing Jesus to other people who've done great things would never do. As a matter of fact, one commentary writer wrote some of the things that people have said about Jesus, well-known, respected leaders. Here's what he wrote. Since Jesus' day, much of the world has similarly wanted to speak highly of Jesus without recognizing his deity or his lordship. Here's a few of them. Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. Napoleon said, I know men, and Jesus was no mere man. Diderot referred to Jesus as the unsurpassed. Strauss, the German rationalist, referred to Jesus as the highest model of religion. John Stuart Mill referred to Jesus as the guide of humanity. The French atheist Renan as the greatest among the sons of men. That's how he referred to Jesus. Theodore Parker referred to him like this, a youth with God in his heart. Robert Owens said this about Jesus, the irreproachable one. Some in our day have called him the ultimate superstar. But all those titles and descriptions fall short of identifying Jesus as he fully is. You with me? So Jesus says, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Think about that. It's no longer everybody else. Insert your name wherever you would like to. He said to Danny, who do you say that I am? Listen, Jesus simply ignores 
every response that they had given him from what everyone else says about him. He does not make any comparisons. He does not say how much greater he is than them. No, it's almost like he didn't even hear it at all. He just wanted them to acknowledge that everybody's got to make a decision about Jesus, not just the world outside of here. Listen to me, friends. Each of us have to make a decision about who Jesus is. He's spoken several times in Matthew chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, even just before this moment in chapter 16, he talks about all those who denied him and rejected him and sought after signs or needed more. He knows what people think about him. He wanted his disciples to understand more than what others did. He needed them to understand that he was more than just any other man. In fact, they had previously experienced this in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. This is after the moment that Jesus walked on water and called Peter out to walk with him. And here's how they responded. Listen to it. Those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Every person must answer the question of who is Jesus. The disciples aren't the only ones who have to deal with this question. Jesus asked this of you. He waits to see what decision we will make. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he some good person who means a lot to you? Or is he the Lord of your life? Is he just a cultural norm, something your family's always done? Is he just a Sunday activity for you and then the rest of the week will go on however it needs to go on? Do you have a pocket where Jesus fits and then you live the rest of your life? Who is Jesus? Jesus to you. Listen, friends, no one can answer this question for you. Your family can't answer this question. Your best friend can't answer this question. Your spouse can't answer this question. Not even your preacher can answer this question for you. You must decide whether or not you will make Jesus the Lord of your life. So what would your answer be if Jesus was to ask you this question right now, just you and him, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? Look at verse 16, right? This is where it starts getting more intense. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Why Peter? Why not any of the other guys that are in that group with Jesus? Maybe it's because he's known as the one who speaks even before he thinks. Or maybe he was the first to understand the true divinity of Jesus. Or maybe it was because when all the other disciples praised Jesus after he walked on water, it was Peter who did more than praise. He walked with Jesus. He had not just seen what Jesus did, he experienced what Jesus did. Maybe it's because his brother was so convincing when he told Peter that he had found the Messiah. Or maybe it was because Peter knew that Jesus was the only one with what he said was, listen to this, the words of eternal life. Regardless of all these things, most people didn't know if Jesus was the Messiah or not. Many of them had no idea who he actually was. They thought that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman government and set upon uh, the, the Jewish people to, to, to rule the earth on their own thrones. They didn't think he would be meek and humble and a servant to all. They didn't think he would die on a cross. Even John the Baptist, who Jesus has already said is greater than anyone ever born of a woman, doubted whether Jesus was the Messiah. But right now, in this moment, not not 
Peter, in comparison to all those before this moment who doubted who Jesus was, Peter clearly makes his decision about Jesus known. And in fact, all of the disciples would forever be secure in who Jesus is. There would be times that they wouldn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They would never again doubt that he was the Messiah. Many people are like those that we've mentioned already. They know Jesus is good. They know he did good things. They may even believe that he's the son of God. However, they haven't confessed him as the Lord of their lives. What about you, friend, today? Is Jesus your savior and your Lord? Now watch this. I love the moment that Peter confesses who Jesus is, is the moment when Jesus shows Peter who he is. I love this. Verse 17, Jesus answered him after Peter's reply, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus told Peter, you're blessed. Can I point something out to you? Everyone, not just Peter, but everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord of their lives is blessed. Say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, listen to this in Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Listen, there's no way any human could make this known to Peter. In fact, most people walked away from Jesus, either in anger or disbelief. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, there are plenty of reasons why Jews at this point viewed that Jesus was a little crazy. He made statements like this. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, everything they'd based their lives on. In the last days, many people would address him as Lord. He claimed at one point in time to be the living bread. And if anyone would eat of him, he would live forever. He said he was the door. And if anyone would enter through him, he would be saved. Jesus made in their minds the most blasphemous statement he could ever make. He said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Friends, the Sabbath was everything to them. Their entire lives revolved around the Sabbath. Their calendar, their work days, their holidays, their family traditions, all revolved around the Sabbath. And Jesus said, I'm greater than that. I'm Lord of what you consider to be the best in your life. Just think about this for a moment. For Jesus to claim that he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 61, as he did in the synagogue in Nazareth, was unmistakably to claim that he was the Messiah. For him to present himself as the source of rest was to present himself as the source of holiness. And to claim lordship over the Sabbath was to claim lordship over everything. You know what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I am everything. Who do you say that I am? Friends, think about this moment. For Peter to make this claim, he's saying, Jesus, you are everything that I need. All I could think about was this moment as we were singing that last song, I depend on you. You remember that phrase? We sang it several times. I depend on you. 
Peter's saying, Jesus, above everything else in my life, above my job, above my family, above whatever other livelihood I have, above everything else that I may love and enjoy, Jesus, above all of that, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus, you are everything. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus, my decision to follow you will forever change the direction of my life. He's saying, I'll no longer care about myself. I'll no longer care about what I want or what I think's best. I'll no longer follow my heart. No, Jesus, I will follow you. And he would eventually, even to his own death. Jesus says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who do you say that I am? You're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. Well, you know what, Peter, you are blessed because only God could show this to you. You know what you are? You are Peter. You are a part of the church that I am building that not even the devil himself will be able to stand Against. Through Peter's confession, he became one of the stones within the grand building that God was going to construct. Many people read this verse and they think that it states that Peter is who God built the church on. But we know that's not the case. As a matter of fact, there are three distinct things that help us prove that idea to be false. The first one is that the word Peter in Greek is the word petros. And the word rock in the Greek is the word petra. The word for Peter is masculine and denotes a loose stone or pebble. The word for rock is feminine and denotes a rock or a cliff, firm and immovable. God's not talking about Peter as a loose stone or pebble. That's not the rock that he built his church on. He's talking about something firm and immovable. What's he talking about? Well, the other thing to remember is that Jesus was using a metaphor that was well illustrated throughout the Bible. All throughout the Old Testament, God was referred to as some sort of rock or stone. Jesus used a well-understood Hebrew symbol of deity, the rock, to illustrate what would happen in the future. Okay, if it's not Peter, what is it that he's building the church on? Well, he's building it on Jesus. And the reason Peter's included in the statement is because it's the confession of Peter that Jesus was the Christ. That was the first stone that the church would be built on. You see, God's looking for people who will confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. Jesus would be the very foundation on which Peter and many others would be built upon. The question arises, what is being built? Well, that's what Jesus says. He says, I will build my church. I love how Peter describes the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is no building. This is no place. This is no time or day. This is the very people of God supernaturally changed into the image of the Son of God. This is what's known as the ecclesia, a chosen people who are free from the power of this world. Listen, the, the church is the greatest movement to ever be started and nothing can stop it. 
Matter of fact, the very gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that the word hell is from the word Hades. May not just simply be the dark flames that you're thinking of, of someone who's forever separated from God. Hades can mean the place of the devil, but it can also simply mean the place of the dead. In other words, neither death nor the devil can defeat the power of God. What's also interesting is to think about the use of the word gates. Gates are defensive, not offensive. Think about what this symbolizes. The devil isn't charging after us in the vision that Jesus gives here. Instead, it's his church that's charging against the gates of hell. The church is the one on the offensive, the one on the attack. It's hell that's trying to stand against the power of Jesus. There are too many people who are stuck behind the devil's gates and are blinded to the truth of God. The church has been commissioned. It's been built pebble by pebble. Each of us in this room, it's been built so that we could go and free those who are in bondage through the power of Jesus Christ. And listen to me, friends, when the church does, when the church charges the gates of hell, maybe you didn't catch what Jesus said, but listen to me, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What are we waiting on? He's already told us he's given us victory. Why do we wait and let the devil come here? Why are we not charging the gates of hell, freeing those who are lost in bondage because we've been empowered by Jesus to change the world forever. Friends, listen to me. The decision you make for Jesus, it will determine the direction of your life. And can I tell you something else? That decision that determines the direction of your life, it might also determine the life of someone else. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look at verse 19. I'm done. I'm hurrying. I promise. It's my last time to preach till next year. I mean, I get it all out. Verse 19, Jesus told his disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Listen, there are so many thoughts about what Jesus is talking about. What do you mean keys? What do you mean bound? What do you mean loosed? All I can think about is this. Those keys are in direct connection with the church in which Jesus has just said he will build. Listen, the fact that Peter would be the one to open those doors or to use the keys can be seen through the fact that he was the servant used to usher in the day of Pentecost when the church was born. Think about that for a moment. Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. In other words, when you stand up and proclaim after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will help usher in the beginning of the church. Also, what I love about this moment, these keys, is that it can be seen in the fact that Peter was the first to be used to reach the Gentile nations. That's you and that's me for the most part in this room. The binding and the loosing is thought of as the church proclaiming the gospel. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, as Jesus' disciples proclaimed his name, they would be opening the doors of heaven to some for those who received Jesus, but they would also be closing the doors of heaven to others. Why? Because they would reject 
the message and choose to live their own way. Here's what I believe Jesus is telling his disciples. Here's what I believe he's telling us today as his church. He's saying, listen, every person will have to make a decision about me. Who am I? Am I just some fun thing, some good person, some Sunday morning activity, or am I Savior and Lord? Who am I? And when we confess Jesus as Lord, we become a part in the church that he's building. Why? The direction that we head is for Jesus so that other people's lives can be changed too. Here's what he's doing. He's saying all those who've given their life to me, all those who follow me, I've now given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What's the keys? Jesus is the key, friend. What are we binding and what are we loosing? Confessions in the name of Jesus. Who are you telling about Christ? church continues to be built. How? As all of us who have the keys to the kingdom, all of us who have Jesus, begin to share him with the world. Those who receive him, they'll be loosed. Those who reject him, they'll be bound. But friends, listen to me. Make no mistake. Jesus has enlisted us in his army. He has brought us into the fold so that we can bring more people into the fold. He's using us as the church, not to sit back and do nothing. That's not the picture. No, no, no. Those gates of hell, he is changing us so that we'll charge them, so we'll break strongholds, so that through the name and power of Jesus, people's lives will be changed forever. He said, Danny, That's pretty exciting, but I'll tell you what, my 2023 didn't really look like charging the gates of hell. (laughs) Can Can I let you in on something, friends? Mine didn't either. But what if I told you 2024 could be different, right? Fresh start, new beginning. What if I told you there'll be plenty of decisions in 2024 where we have the opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, where we have the opportunity to be built up as his church, where we have the opportunity with the keys of the kingdom to storm the gates of hell. What if I told you that because we're still here, God's not finished with us yet? What if I told you that today your life could change forever? If today you don't know Jesus, what if I told you that one decision right now to follow Christ would change the direction of your life forever? Friends, listen, that invitation is yours. If you're here this morning, you say, Danny, I don't know Jesus. I'm not a follower of his. I've got questions. I've got doubts. I don't know what I should do. I don't know where to turn. Well, listen, friend, it begins as Jesus calls you, convicts you, as he wants to bring you out of darkness in his glorious light. It begins right now with you taking a moment to say, Jesus, you're asking the question, who do I say that you are? Right now, you and him need to decide what that looks like for you. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, can I tell you something? (laughs) He's given you another opportunity today. He's once again asking you, who do you say that I am? Will you today decide to follow him? Just real quickly, listen to me, why not? He gave everything for you. He climbed on a cross, lived a perfect life and died in your place so that your sins could be forgiven. Think about what it means to reject Jesus. Not only is he paying the penalty for your sins, but so will you. You will spend an eternity separated from Jesus even though he's already paid for it. 
Why not today decide that you'll trust in what he's done for you? Can I just tell you something real quick? Listen to me. If that's you, you don't need me. You don't need anybody else. You know what you need to do? Just a few moments. We're going to sing. We're going to respond to the gospel. Here's what you need to do. You need to take a few moments, just you and Jesus. You don't have to say it out loud, just you and him. Might freak somebody out next to you, I guess. They might think you're talking to them, but you don't have to do that. Just you and Jesus, here's what you need to do. You need to say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I know that you died on the cross to forgive me for my sins. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me, to save me. I wanna live for you for the rest of my days. Just a simple prayer like that. You can right now make a decision to begin following Jesus. Listen, as we respond in a moment, if that's you, can I tell you something? I'm gonna be right out there in that lobby. I'd love for you, spend a moment with Jesus, step out from your pew and say, Danny, I just gave my life to Christ. What do I do next? And I'd love to help you with what your next step would be since you've given your life to Jesus. Listen, decisions determine directions. Will that decision for you today be to give your life to Jesus? But here's what I know. It's New Year's Eve. Probably all of you in here already trust in Jesus. Praise God. Matter of fact, since no one may respond in just a moment, I'll just trust that everybody in here does know Jesus. And so here's what I'm gonna say to you, because here's what I've been wrestling with too, and you're in the same boat. As I think about my life, as I think about my own confession in Jesus, I already made that decision, right? I already said Jesus is Lord and Savior. I've already asked him to forgive me and make me his. I've already surrendered my life to him. But can I tell you something? Listen to me. There are plenty of days that go by that you may not know that I've confessed Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Matter of fact, there's some days when I wake up and I don't know because I have lived a life that does not represent Jesus. Anybody else been in that boat before? Dang, just me. Okay, it's awkward then. All right, good. Two others. I appreciate your honesty. I'm gonna talk to you two for just a minute. The rest of you can take a nap, I guess. Here's what I know. I still believe Jesus is asking me that question every day. Hey, Danny, who do you say I am? You've confessed me as your Lord and Savior, but you sure haven't lived like it. And I would just present to every Christian in this room this morning, maybe this is a great opportunity, right? I'm not trying to make any kind of weird hocus pocus, New Year's Eve kind of whatever. I know it's just another day. But as you think today and respond to Jesus, maybe you would ask yourself that same question. Not who do I say Jesus is as if I need to give my life to him again. That's already happened. But as I'm following him and living for him, does my life represent the confession that I've made? Do my actions, my thoughts, my life choices, am I headed in the direction that I decided years ago when I gave my life to Jesus? Or have I gotten off track somewhere? Have I taken a detour here or there? Has my life not been going the direction that Jesus wants? Can I tell you something? He's still building his church. And maybe today he wants to add you as a pebble in the, in the building. He wants to add you as a stone as he saves someone's life today. But can I tell you something else? For all of you who are stones, I wonder when last time was that you shared it with somebody else. I wonder when the last time was that you took the keys of the kingdom that have been given to you and you have loosed someone else. Or has that been the farthest thing from your mind for a long time? Listen, I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus. I just know where I am and it's not where I need to be. I just know what I need to do and I need to confess Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I know what I need to do. I can't speak for you, but I need to get serious about my walk with Jesus. The gates of hell, they ain't even gotta be locked for me last year. I didn't ever get close to them. What if we change that this year? 
What if the devil actually has to look out for us because we're charging with the power of Jesus to break down the gates of hell? Listen, I don't know how you need to respond, but I know when the Bible is preached, it demands a response from us. So listen, I'm gonna stop talking. Amen. I'm gonna pray for us. And we're gonna have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. So whatever that looks like from this text, Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? You've been given the keys. He he wants to change the world through you. What, What does that look like? And how do you need to respond to Jesus today?